How you guys doing? How's the Christmas shopping going? Anybody done? God bless you. God bless you. So this morning we're starting a brand new sermon series called Awkward Family Christmas. And uh, any of you have any awkward family members? Just a couple. I see those hands. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, because this is being uh, recorded and broadcasted, I'm not going to share. But I know we all have uh, different tensions that tend to uh, surface during the Christmas season as we meet with family and extended family. And uh, this morning, we're going to share some thoughts about the awkward family Christmas. And uh, yeah, our part one message is entitled, Is This Christmas Card Fridge Worthy? That's a great question. I don't know what kind of cards make it to your refrigerator, uh, but you know how you get that beautiful photo of the newborns or the, uh, the family that's near and dear to you and they have these professional photos done. Those are the ones that are easy to put up on the uh, refrigerator, but some of them, as you'll see on the screen here, uh, they're just a little awkward. They're just a little painful. Yeah, some of these photos yeah, ended up being a little bit awkward. Uh, I don't know if you have a cat. Some, some people like to get into the ugly sweaters and uh, such for their family photos. I'd definitely put that one on my fridge. Hmm. I have no response to that. that. Yeah. But from the life of Jesus, we, we see a very awkward family background. As we get into the backstory that is Advent season and uh, eventually what becomes the nativity scene, the backstory of, of Jesus is an incredible story. And uh, I just want to take a moment and read some of these verses to you, um, just so we can kind of get a little bit of a, a grip on what was going on in Jesus' background. Matthew 1 says, A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah. And again, we're shifting away now from the firstborn of Isaac and Jacob to Judah being the fourthborn, along with his brothers. Verse 3, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, twins, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram. 
Ram was the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Interesting, we shift again to talking about one of the mums. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, again mentioning a mum. And Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon, whose mother Bathsheba had been Uriah's wife. I just want to pause there for a second. We're getting a bit of a backstory here from Matthew. Hmm. The other gospel writers have very different intentions, especially when it comes to the Christmas story. Mark just basically jumps right into the life of Jesus. Typical of Mark, he's an eyewitness to many of the things that happened in his gospel account. And Mark just kind of tells the everyman story from an eyewitness perspective. Luke comes on the scene. He's a medical doctor. Luke gives a lot of detail. Luke gives a much more lengthy genealogy. John's gospel doesn't touch at all on the background of Jesus. Again, he just jumps right into the story of Jesus from the point of John the baptizer and on. John's gospel contrasts darkness and light. John clearly presents the good news of Jesus coming. And he writes all these things to lead us towards belief, away from unbelief and towards belief. Matthew's gospel, he takes a totally different tack. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. And so he presents Christ as Messiah, the chosen, promised one, who's the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. He presents Jesus as king, as the one who comes to set up his kingdom, the new rule, the new order, the new way. So Matthew traces his genealogy back to King David, showing the kingly line. But there's something very unique about the story as Matthew presents it. He doesn't just show that Jesus came from a king. He shows that Jesus came with a very different kind of kingdom altogether. First of all, some of the people that Matthew mentions are downright offensive in a society of Judaism where, you know, it's a, it's a man's culture. And women are often treated as second-class citizens, or by some, women are treated like chattel. Matthew is being very bold to put in these first six verses four women. I mean, this would be very disconcerting to your average Jewish leader. What kind of kingdom is this that he would mention Bathsheba, Ruth, Tamar, and Rahab? I mean, he could have left the mums out altogether. He was going along great with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But then he doesn't go with the firstborn. He skips down to the fourthborn, Judah, 
And then he starts in on his daughter-in-law. I just want to look at these four women and share their backstories briefly to show just how incredibly good the good news is found in Matthew's Gospel. But before we look at these four women, can we just take a moment and pray? that be okay? Father, God, we invite your presence today. We know that your presence is already here with us. But as we look into your word, we just invite you to come with your peace, your understanding, and your covering. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So the first woman we're going to look at this morning, just for a couple minutes of her backstory, is Bathsheba. You'll see her story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a a UFO, an unclad female object. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. As the story continues on the next slide, the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. So in the next few verses, David has Uriah, the husband, killed. He contacts his commanding officers. They send Uriah to the front lines and then withdraw, leaving him alone. And consequently, he's killed. And David has opportunity to move on in this relationship with Bathsheba now that the husband's out of the picture. The baby, however, becomes gravely ill And that's where we pick it up in verse 18. On the seventh day, the child died. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. He went to her. He lay with her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. So this is one of the ladies that Matthew points out In the background of Jesus, in his backstory, we have Bathsheba. He could have just mentioned David and left it at that. Look, there's kingly lineage. But Matthew is going somewhere with this. He's pointing out, yeah, David, great king, great warrior, great man, but hold on a second. It's not as pretty. Do you remember you saw these stories in the National Enquirer? Uh, Bathsheba, that, that whole scandal. Remember the gossip was Uriah, something going on there. The king had him knocked off, had a price on his head or something, and eventually got rid of him. Do you remember the backstory? Matthew is pulling out into the light. And this backstory isn't as pretty as you think. Yes, Jesus descended from a king. But remember the mom, 
Remember there was a scandal. Remember there was an adulterous affair. Remember there was something kind of sketchy going on there. Murder. Cover up. That's Jesus' background. Yes, King David, but Matthew also mentions Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. And for your average reader, all of a sudden this sense of, oh, Jesus, our Messiah, our King, oh, Bathsheba, not so pretty. There's another story, the second character that we're going to look at this morning is Ruth. Her story is found in Ruth chapter 1, which speaks of Elimelech, Naomi's husband, who died. And Naomi was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, which we just kind of read over, but this is a big deal. One named Orpah, the other named Ruth. And they'd lived there about 10 years, uh, and after that both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without the two sons or her husband. So for Ruth, there's something, again, just a, a quick reference to this lady, the mother of Boaz. And the implication is, yeah, in the story of Jesus' lineage, yeah, he was descended from a king, but it wasn't like a pure lineage. There's Moabite women involved. Yet I know a lot of people, a lot of ethnicities take pride in an unadulterated lineage. Yeah, we're Italian. Every one of us was Italian. No Sicilians, just pure Italians. If you're Sicilian this morning here, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying, for example, some people take pride that there's no other ethnicities mixed into their heritage. For the Jewish people, this was really a big deal because in the Old Testament, God spoke very clearly and said, don't intermarry with other races. It, it, it'll, it'll cause your hearts to be led astray to other idols, other religions. Don't go there. So there wasn't just an ethnic bias. There was something religious about it. To marry Moabite women, to marry women from a foreign nation, this brought great discrimination. And then further, not only was there discrimination, but these were widows. Naomi and her two daughters both widowed. They'd be social outcasts. There's no provision for them in the law. They're, they're poor they're rejected. It's bad enough they're discriminated against, but now doubly so because they're widows. They have no social status. They, they're looked down upon not just because of their poverty, but because they're outsiders. For Matthew to mention this is to say there's hope for the outsider. If you feel like an outcast, if you feel like you don't fit in, the message of Matthew is there's room for Naomi and there's especially room for Ruth. Her name is actually mentioned 
in the genealogy of Jesus. There's a Moabite in there. There's an outsider. There's a social outcast, somebody with no social standing or support. And she's a part of this proud lineage of Jesus Christ. What an incredible message of grace. What, what a message of embrace, acceptance, tolerance, unheard of before Matthew's genealogy. The third character I want to look at, and sorry, I'm just trying to be brief with these backstories because they're powerful, short little stories. This one's just bizarre. In Genesis 38, the story of Judah, he had three boys, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Ur did something wicked in the eyes of the Lord, and he was gone. Onan was supposed to step up and marry his sister, provide offspring for her, but he kind of bailed out on that. So the Lord killed him. And then there was a third son, Sheila. That's just kind of cruel to name your boy Sheila. Sheila wasn't yet of marrying age, so Tamar, the daughter-in-law of Judah, Judah said to her, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Sheila grows up. Later she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. She saw that though Sheila had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. So there's a little breakdown here because the law makes it clear that if there's no offspring for Ur or Onan, Sheila is to step up. Here's Tamar. She becomes the desperate housewife. One day, Judah is out traveling, and in verse 15, when Judah saw Tamar, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. Yeah, that's a little sketchy. Judah, in the lineage of Jesus, picking up a hooker. Awkward. Let's read on in the story. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she's now pregnant. And she was able to prove... You can look at the story on your own time, but she was able to prove that Judah was the dad. Verse 27, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. And as she was giving birth, a graphic appeared over the slides. We'll go ahead with the next slide. That's fine. He stuck out his hand, but when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, so... This is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Perez means breaking out. And when his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, he was given the name Zara. Zara means scarlet or brightness. So again, here's these two boys listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The two boys being Perez and Zara. 
It's kind of a bizarre story when it comes time for the boys to be born. One of them says, I'm here! And sticks out his fist. And the midwife who's attending it ties the thread around his wrist. But then the wrist pops back in and out comes the other kid with nothing on his wrist. And so the birth order gets a little confused, but I think the really odd thing about the story is this is another one of these stories that Matthew, like if you want to mention the boys, Perez and Zara, that's fine, but did you have to say Tamar? I mean, we were doing well with our little family, family history lesson, but as soon as you mentioned Tamar, we remember the father-in-law picking up a hooker, getting her pregnant. Oh, it's okay. He didn't know it was his daughter-in-law. Like, how sketchy is this? What a dodgy story. A father-in-law supposed to give his son to be married to this girl. Holds back on the deal. She's forced in desperation to dress up as a prostitute so that she can become pregnant and carry on the family line. The family line of Jesus. Matthew, why do you have to go there? Like It's not bad enough you mention Ruth, the outsider. You, you didn't have to say that. You're talking about Tamar, Judah, that whole... Ugh. We'd rather just kind of Sweep that one under the carpet. And if it wasn't bad enough that he mentioned these three, we'll finish with Rahab. Rahab's story is found in Joshua chapter 2. Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies. He said, go look over the land, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The woman had taken the two men, the spies, and hidden them. In the next verses, before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof where she was hiding them, and she said to them, I know the Lord has given this land to you so that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Verse 10, 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you'll show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. So she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. Verse 17, the men promised her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you have let us down and unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away, they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. I love this promise because it's not just a promise for her. I don't know what life circumstances had brought Rahab to this situation. Maybe she'd lost her husband. 
maybe she was divorced. But she found herself, again, desperate to earn a living for herself. And maybe for children, we're not sure. But at this point, she's functioning as a prostitute, and the, the spies promise her, not only will we save you, we're going to save your mom and your dad and your siblings. The promise to be saved is for the whole family. And Joshua is good on that. You'll see in the following verses, Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house, bring her out, and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father, mother, and brothers, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside of the camp of Israel. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. This is what I want you to see. There's this beautiful scarlet thread and cord that run through these last two stories. Again, Rahab's a prostitute. But there's this promise because the scarlet cord was hanging out the window, this clear identifier. Hmm. I think of Nathaniel Hawthorne's classic, the scarlet letter. Scarlet can be used as an identifier of adultery, sexually inappropriate activities, a prostitute. We still know to this day that red is often a symbol of the industry of prostitution. According to those words of Sting, Roxanne, you don't need to put out the red light. Red, a color of sexually inappropriate sin. Hmm. And yet that's the same color that's tied onto the wrist of these, this baby boy, one of the twins, where the father-in-law, had Judah, had picked up a prostitute. And again, the red cord hanging out the window of a prostitute. These, this thread and this rope are woven into the tapestry that is Jesus' family background. Hmm. Incredible. You'll see on the next slide here that this is as awkward as family gets. We have outsiders, we have broken promises, we have murder, we have sexual offenses, discrimination, prostitution, death and deception. But these words from Isaiah, Come now, let's settle the matter, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet. They will be as white as snow, though they're as red as crimson. They shall be like wool. What a powerfully redemptive promise from the prophet. The same prophet who pointed ahead and said, A virgin will conceive 
and she will bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. Wonderful counselor, the, the prince of peace. There's this promise that in the mess of life, even like the worst kind of dysfunction and sin and just weirdness of family, there's this incredible promise of redemption, the scarlet factor. I remember the first time I met Karen. This is over 20 years ago. Karen was coming to our church. Karen kind of stood out in the crowd because she dressed goth. I mean, everything head to toe was black. She had her hair dyed black, black lipstick, black eyeshadow. Her face, other than that, was a pale, pasty white. But right from the tip of her head right down to her Doc Martens, everything was black. She stood out to me, too, because she stood at the back of the room, usually as I was preaching, and would kind of do all this weird stuff. See, she was also a practicing witch, and she was speaking curses and incantations over me. Awesome. That always makes for a good night of preaching. I remember talking to Karen, getting to know her a bit. She was always withdrawn, pulling away, really wanted to have nothing to do with me or any of our male youth leaders in particular. She warmed up to some of the female youth leaders. We built quite a bit of relationship with Karen as she kept coming in subsequent weeks. But she was a troubled young lady. She'd been abused, victimized, and she'd turned to Wicca and then Satanism as an outlet for her pain. She showed up at our church because a friend invited her. And she kept coming and she wasn't even really sure why. Just a couple months after we got to know her, we got a call one day from her high school principal. I don't think this would happen today. But the principal invited us down and said that Karen was harming herself and had also made threats, threats against her own life. She was just desperate, just crying out for help. And we'd already been journeying with her, but now we took a step even closer into her life to hear about the pain, to hear about the abuse. Her parents had started coming to our church as well, and we were very surprised to find out that the parents had a very strong evangelical church background. Matter of fact, the dad was regularly involved in the worship team. I mean, this looked like the idyllic family. Nice parents. We'd been to their home for a meal. We'd connected with them on other occasions. They just, they seemed like really nice, normal people. But as we heard the unfolding story of abuse, as troubling as that was, 
the thing that was really creating tension in her heart was her dad was getting up and pretending like everything was cool on Sunday and being a part of the worship team, but Saturday nights he would dress up as a lady and go out clubbing and get involved with other men. It was more so that he was living a lie. She just couldn't handle the duplicity. She was upset. She was hurt. She was very desperate. In spite of the mess that was her family, I remember at a Friday night youth service, just a few months after that, offering a response for people to connect with Jesus. To make him not just a part of their life, but priority, number one, in their life. And Karen raised her hand, not just that night, but many of the Friday nights that followed, just responding for life change, for transformation, for prayer, for, for any opportunity to open her life to God. And that was in the spring, and I remember later that summer seeing Karen and not recognizing her. She'd totally changed. Her hair was no longer black. It was a curly, spiral, dirty blonde. She had her hair pulled back behind her ear, she had like an incredibly, perfectly straight and brilliant white smile, which was alarming to me because I'd never seen her smile. I'd only seen her scowl. Her clothes were bright and, you know, feminine, like floral and stuff. And she carried this energy and this happiness about her. And that's why I didn't recognize her. In just a couple short months, she had literally become a totally different person. It makes sense because the Bible said, these are the words of the Apostle Paul, he said, if anyone is in Christ, they are a brand new creature. The old is gone, and look, something new has come. That is the story of Jesus. That is the good news of what Jesus can do in our lives. If we commit our lives to him, everything changes. The house is under new management. Again, the old is gone and the new has come. There's a turning away from the darkness and the dysfunction and the pain everything that was represented in Jesus' family history. And there's a turning towards life and redemption. My question for you this morning is WWJP. Not what would Jesus do, but who would Jesus pick? You know that old saying. You pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. But Jesus could. Jesus could pick 
handpick his family. And he did. And look at the family that he picked. Again, we went through the list. We reviewed the four ladies. He picked an incredible context of dysfunction. Why would he do that? Why would he do such a thing? This, this is in keeping with the broader message of Scripture that he can take ugly, messy, dysfunctional things and turn them around and show off his redemptive nature. He's a God who transforms and makes things new. He, he takes messy, complicated things and he chooses to put his glory, his astounding and amazing wonder in these jars of clay, these little clay pots that are our lives with all the mess and all the dysfunction and all the problems just to show the world, look what I can do with my kids. Look how I can take a dark situation and turn it around and make it something incredibly helpful that makes our society and our world a better place. This is how he rolls. He's a God who takes that scarlet thread, who takes the messy scarlet letters of our lives and makes something incredibly beautiful. I'm going to invite the worship team to come and share a closing song with us. And in a couple minutes, I'd like to come back and pray for you. Thank you. This Advent season is filled with beautiful contrast. A king born into a feeding trough. Hmm. The royalty of heaven visited by common shepherds. This genealogy filled with questionable outsiders and sinners of all kinds. People whose lives are a mess. And it's into that family tree, that family line, Jesus chose to come. Our lives are a reflection of this profound contrast. Yeah, we face all kinds of difficulties and hard times. But really, it's just an opportunity to show off the good news of our Lord Jesus. And so today, I make declaration into your circumstance. For those of you that walk through heaviness, for those of you that come from family backgrounds of dysfunction and pain, to you, I declare the peace, the strength, the beauty and the majesty of Jesus our Lord, who truly makes everything new. He goes even into the darkest recesses of our past, those dirty little corners where there's secrets and pain. He reaches in, he cleanses it, he fixes it, he restores our souls. And I decree over you that healing touch 
from Jesus to make everything new. The old is gone. Not might be gone, not could be gone or should be, but he has already, 2,000 years ago on the cross, made everything brand new. And like the family of Rahab, there's a promise coming. Even though its fulfillment has not yet been actualized, I declare over you that you are the people of God, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's personal possession. He is the one who makes straight a highway in the wilderness for our God. He makes the mountains come down. He makes the valleys come up. He makes the rough places smooth. And all mankind will see it together. I declare over you that his healing, his salvation, his quickening is on you today. I speak peace into your troubled spirit. I speak rest into your weary soul because the king has already come. And so today I bless you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit with grace, with peace, with life that the joy of the Christmas season would be in your heart today, all week long, despite the snow and the freezing cold weather, that the radiance and warmth of the sun would go crazy in your life. I bless you, and I declare his peace unto you. In Jesus' name. You're welcome to join us over on this side if you need prayer or encouragement. Prayer team would be delighted to meet with you. Thanks for being here today. Have a wonderful week. God be with you.